We are outdoor ladies who hunt, shoot, and fish, all while working in conservation and chasing kids. I am Julia Plugge with the Nebraska Game and Parks Commission. I'm Rachel Alice with the Iowa Department of Natural Resources. And I'm Tana Fancher with the Kansas Department of Wildlife Parks. Follow us on our outdoor adventures. Welcome back to another episode of She Goes Outdoors. The She Goes Outdoors team has been so busy preparing for fall and all of our exciting fall programming. And it can be so easy to get wrapped up in like the hustle and bustle of fall. I'm talking sports, planning hunts, work, all that goes into fall. Plus, we got the holidays creeping up on us right around the corner. Um, with all that going on, it's easy to forget to stop and smell the roses or perhaps more seasonally appropriate to take a deep breath and simply observe all the beautiful fall colors. So. On this episode, we're going to slow it down and take a moment to talk about all those beautiful fall colors and appreciate the biological processes that make them possible. Absolutely. And you will remember our guest, Deidre Kramer, from our episode about what animals do in the storms. Deidre is the director of Pratt Museum and Education Center and has special love for box turtles. For those of you who haven't had a chance to catch up your previous episodes, will you tell us a little about yourself and what your job is with KDWP? Well, hi, everyone. It's great to be back here and visiting with you all today. So in short, I'm a biologist and I focused my education and research interests in botany, which is the study of plants herpetology, which is the study of reptiles, amphibians, and turtles, and conservation. So currently, my position with the Kansas Department of Wildlife and Parks involves running the Pratt Education Center, and um, you know we house a lot of native Kansas species, including snakes, turtles, amphibians, and, and fish. And my main job is to care for those animals and maintain our building, but I'm also involved in providing educational programs about Kansas wildlife to our local schools and citizens. So that's kind of me in a nutshell. That's awesome, Deidre. It's so great to have you back. We were just talking about how your Animals and Storms was one of our most popular episodes. So it's great to have one of the stars of the show come back and join us. So you mentioned that you have a biology background, obviously, and we're so thankful for that. I know we're going to get a, a taste of that today. Um, as far as getting into the educational component, did you always know that was a path you wanted to go, or did you think you wanted to stay more biology, working directly with the resource? You know, I honestly thought I was going to be research biologist 100%. And education was just kind of like, you know, a reach out thing that I did every once in a while, but it wasn't a passion or anything. But I will say being an education director, you definitely learn to appreciate the outreach and getting people engaged. So I took a little bit of a shift from my original, you know, plans, but I still enjoy it. So it's good. Good. Well, you make a huge impact over there and you do a fantastic job. Folks, if you haven't been to that Pratt Museum and Education Center to visit Deidre and all those cute critters that she cares for, I'd encourage you to go. They most recently updated the aquariums and those look super, super cool. Deidre does a great job with that entire facility and is super knowledgeable and will talk to you all day. So I encourage you to visit the facility and say hi to Deidre. 
So this morning when uh, I was headed to work and, and dropping off my kiddos at daycare, they all of a sudden go, Mom, Mom, the trees are changing colors. And they were just so shocked by that, so excited. And I said, that is a great observation. And then they were still stuck on that word observation, which is super cute to hear four-year-olds go off that, like, observation. Thanks, Mom. But, you know, speaking of this, like, they totally noticed that the trees here in Nebraska, the leaves are turning orange. So this deep question for you, we got this deep question, answer it as long as you want or as short as you want. So this is honestly such a simple question, but it has a very complex answer. And so I'm going to do my best to not get too heavy with the technical terms. You could totally go at it like you're teaching a four-year-old if you want. <laughs> We're okay with that. We're just going to nod and smile, Deidre. Yeah. Sometimes when I, I talk about plants, that's with my family. Um, that's kind of what they do. They're like, oh, cool. <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, I'll I'll try my best to keep it interesting. (laughs) So first off, I thought, you know, it would be important to discuss like what a leaf is and what is its purpose. You know, it's cool to talk about the changing leaves, but what, why are they there? So, you know, we have two different types of leaves. We have dicot leaves, which are part of a plant that has two cotyledons when it germinates. And therefore, you have it called die, which means two, and cot, which stands for cotyledons. And the dicot leaves are, you know, any structure that subtends a bud on a plant. So they can be long, little stringy vines. They can be big, broad leaves of what we think of a leaf. Um, so leaves are very diverse. And then you also, with your dicot leaves, you have this broad blade and these branched veins on it. So you can usually tell by just looking at a leaf if if a plant is a dicot or a monocot. And so speaking of monocots, that means that they have one cotyledon when they germinate. So that mono means one. And these plants are most often, not always, but they're most often grasses. So, you know, we live in the, the Great Plains area. We have a lot of grasses around us and those are all monocots. So you can think of monocots as having these long, thin leaves with parallel venation or veins. And that's kind of how you can tell the difference between the two plant types. And then you need to discuss the function of a leaf on a plant. And that, you know, we think of leaves as very beautiful structures that rustle in the breeze or, you know, the 50 mile an hour gusts of wind that we get, the nice Kansas or Nebraska breeze. And you know, they they do, they produce these cor- gorgeous colors in the fall, but leaves are functional. Everything on a plant, everything on an animal has a function. And so the function, the main function of leaves is to carry out photosynthesis. And that is basically when the leaf collects energy from the sun and uses that energy to produce food, which is in the form of sugars. So like glucose and sucrose. And so the way that the leaves carry out photosynthesis is they have what we call chlorophyll. And there are two major types of chlorophyll, which is chlorophyll A and chlorophyll B. And these are green pigments found inside of the leaf. Leaves also contain yellow and red carotenoids which is another form of pigment. And these are the important bits. So I'm gonna talk about some other stuff, but just remember chlorophyll and yellow and red carotenoids. That's what we're really gonna get down to. So the chlorophyll 
and the carotenoids, what they do is they absorb different wavelengths of light and light contains energy. And then, like I said, that energy is collected by the chlorophyll and then used to generate the plant food in the chloroplast. So now to finally answer your question, Julia, why do leaves change color in the fall? Well, the way that pigments work is they absorb all the wavelengths of light except for the color we see, which is actually being reflected or bounced back to our eyes. So the predominant color of chlorophyll is green, so that means the chlorophyll is actually absorbing all the wavelengths of light in the visible spectrum and reflecting green back to us. And so that's why we perceive most leaves as green. Now what happens in the fall is that the tree begins to, or the plant, I should say, begins to enter dormancy. And this signals the plant to produce and release specific hormones and do um, structural changes. And that eventually leads to the leaves changing color and eventually falling. So the chlorophylls begin to break down and this allows the plant to reabsorb some of the nitrogen found in the leaves which nitrogen is a limiting resource for plants. So they try to preserve as much as they can before they lose the leaf entirely. And so this means that the yellow and red carotenoids are now becoming the dominant pigment. They aren't breaking down like the chlorophyll are. And so as the chlorophylls go down in number, the dominant color that's are being reflected back to us are red and yellows. That's kind of where the, you know, the color change comes from. And if there aren't, as far as I remember, there aren't orange carotenoids. So when you get that nice orange fall color, you have to think of your color theory. So you, you mix yellow and red you get orange. So that's why you get this really beautiful mix of all those fall colors. Oh, that's fascinating, Deidre. We definitely asked the right person on the podcast today. I'm a plant nerd. So uh, <laughs> sometimes I feel like I really bore people, but hopefully y'all are interested enough to listen to me drone on. Totally interested. And honestly, I think my four-year-old would have listened to that too and just been that awe and wow, you should write a book about it too. And like a little kid's book, that'd be fun. <laughs> That's a good idea. I'll have to keep that in mind maybe. <laughs> In my all my spare time. <laughs> so Deidre, for us, not quite as in the know. Does that process have a name of the leaves changing color or even when the leaves are shed from the trees? Yeah, so the overall process is just the, the plant going into its dormant stage. But as far as like the leaves falling off of the plant, that's called leaf abscission, which is the term for just natural separation from a leaf of the leaf from a stem. Abscission occurs due to the structural and chemical changes that I alluded to in my previous description. And the leaf separation occurs at the base of the petiole. So that's like right where the leaf attaches to a stem. And so what happens is that these, these chemical changes and signals in the plant are telling it, we need to form a protection layer and we need to form a separation layer on this leaf and get rid of it. We'll talk about the protection layer first. Think of you're looking at a leaf and you're, you're kind of on the stem side of it. And what's happening there is the plant is making up these heavily suberized cells, which is a, just a fancy biology term for waxy cells. It's just a, a kind of a strong wax. And that forms a protective layer that keeps out any unwanted bacteria, viruses, fungi, anything like that out of the plant to keep it healthy while it's dormant. And then you have your separation layer, which is on the leaf side. And this is where the cells become swollen and gelatinous. And they just kind of make this really soft, gooey structure. 
and this weakens the connection point from the leaf. And so, you know, we live in the Great Plains and we get some very beautiful winds here. And that wind, once the leaf structure is finally weakened enough, it'll finally, you know, wind will, will take it off or gravity will take hold and it falls down. So that's the abscission process of leaves and why it happens. That's fascinating. When that happens, isn't that leaf basically being cut off from like the vascular system of the tree? And mm -hmm. just think about, it's like if you cut your hand off, I mean, just think about having exposed veins and things like that. It's kind of similar in a way on a much smaller scale. And I find it fascinating the way the tree, and I'm going to you know, trees don't think like humans do. I understand that. But the way the tree is able to think about the fact that it needs to both protect itself and seal off that vulnerable end from where the leaf is shed. And then also just kind of like turn to mush that leaf and say, hey, thanks for all your help generating energy for me this year, but we're, yeah. we're done. Yeah, exactly. And it's, you know, there's, there's a lot more into that, that whole process, but you know, the nitty gritty, that's exactly what's happening is, is the trees like, I need, I need to protect myself and I don't need these structures anymore. So let's get rid of them and stop wasting energy to survive. Oh, I, winter. I think that's empowering. It's like, Hey mm -hmm. man, cut the, cut the things out of your life that aren't providing you life and energy anymore. I love it. I don't know that I've ever heard that connection, but I mean, man, we're getting deep here today. That's right. <laughs> you know, it seems like years we see such beautiful colors, bright, beautiful colors on the trees and other plants, while other years they just like drop. You know, there's hardly a change and all of a sudden they just drop. We haven't been able to experience the colors. Are there environmental factors that affect the colors of the leaves and or how long they stay on the trees? Yeah, most definitely. And really what uh, you think about the basic needs of a plant to grow and survive, and those environmental factors include light, temperature, water, humidity, and nutrition. So when we're talking about plant dormancy, what are those environmental signals that tell it, hey, we're not producing as much food, we're not gaining as much energy, we need to go dormant. And those factors are really tied into the temperature, light, and water environmental factors. And so you kind of think about the, the larger scale of things with climate change, we're having these more hotter falls, colder, drier springs. It's all playing into the plant life cycle. You know, the availability of light temperatures getting cooler and the lack of water is really what's signaling the plants, hey, it's time to start going dormant. And so if that's being affected by climate change or just season seasonality, different falls have different temperatures, et cetera. And so all of that plays into how long the leaves are going to stay in their fall color if they drop suddenly. You know, I don't have a super in-depth answer to that, but those those are all the factors that really play into it. And it's very complex on how the plant responds. Yeah. So is there like a perfect, and I know it's complex, like you said, there's a lot of factors, but it, is it, if we want to see more beautiful fall colors, are we hoping for a gradual cool down and a gradual reduction in light? Is it really that like quick change that tends to just drop the leaves to the ground? Yeah, I would say so. Just anecdotally, that would be how I would look at it is just that those gradual changes are really going to give you that nice extended fall color and look. 
That's good to know. We all have our fingers crossed for that every year. And it seems like we go through this wild cycle of like fool's fall and then back to 90 degrees in the midst of you already making soup for the season, like (laughs) every year. Right. (laughs) So when we talk about trees that shed their leaves in the fall, we're usually talking about deciduous trees, right? Yes. Yeah. So there are deciduous trees and loosely termed, that means broad-leaved trees. And they're also called angiosperms, which means they reproduce using flowers and their seeds are encased in a fruit. And, you know, we don't really think about trees producing flowers, but they do. And um, they usually make our driveways pretty crazy in the springtime and a mess to clean up. But I just leave mine because, you know, let nature do its thing. And so, you know, the the deciduous trees are the wide leaves that change color and are lost every year. And then in contrast to that, we also have our coniferous trees, which means cone-bearing trees. And so... These are part of the gymnosperm group and they also produce seeds, but, but botanists call these seeds like naked because they're not encased in like a ripened ovary, which is a fruit. And the major distinction of coniferous trees is that they are evergreen trees. So they don't shed their leaves every year like other plants and their leaves are the actual like the spiky needles that we all love to walk up against um, <laughs> while we're out doing field work, right? And coniferous trees, they photosynthesize year-round. They don't stop producing food for the tree. Huh, that's fascinating. So like some examples of deciduous trees might be maples. Here in the Midwest, we see a lot of cottonwoods, whereas like your pine tree, your typical Christmas tree would be coniferous, right, Deidre? Yes, that's correct. Nice. I'm ace in this lesson, guys. <laughs> give Julia's four-year-old a run for their money. That's all right. That's all right. We talked about the positive or the benefits that the tree has to itself when it drops the leaves as far as the color change and then energy saving when the leaves drop. But what's happening and perhaps are there any benefits to the soil once that uh, those leaves drop, even comparison to when like my yard is full of leaves and we don't rake them up versus maybe the neighbor that rakes all their leaves up. Now, is, is there a difference on what may be happening in that process? Yes, most definitely. So leaf litter and, you know, just dead plant material in general is going to benefit your soil. It's going to benefit your decomposers, which are like, if you think about isopods or roly polies earthworms, your fungi, everything like that, they're all going to be working on decomposing this plant matter. And what's happening is we're actually recycling our nutrients. So nutrients don't disappear. They don't, they're not like energy. We don't burn them up or give it off as heat. They get recycled into the system. And so when leaf litter is being decomposed, all that nitrogen, the phosphorus, carbon, it's all going back into your soil. And if you think about your uh, commercial fertilizers, what are some of the main ingredients? Nitrogen, phosphorus, you know, all of those nutrients that are limiting to plants and help plants grow larger and faster. So if you leave your leaf litter in the yard, what you're doing is you're encouraging natural fertilization. And you aren't going to have to worry about spending money on those artificial 
fertilizers. You're doing it naturally and you're letting your decomposers do all the work for you, which I'm all for. Let nature do its thing. Let nature, you know, help you out. Don't try and control it. And it also, you know, it helps with the runoff and the pollution of fertilizers. We all live in an agricultural area and that's, you know, a big issue. And so I would say your neighbors are putting a lot more time and effort into their yard when they could just let, you know, little crickets and isopods do their thing. And I think, you know, leaving your leaf litter is pretty beneficial for your soil. Bam, another reason that I don't have to work in my lawn. I mean, I don't water it because I don't want to mow it. And now I'm not going to (laughs) break the leaves. I don't have to fertilize in the spring. Thank you. Yeah. Well, how ironic is that too? Because often in the fall, we see people start to, like they seed their yards with grass seed and fertilize where it's like, oh, you could just let nature do its thing and like save yourself the trouble. And I'm all for that. Less work, the better. So there are some species of animals and insects, and you mentioned some of the insects that really depend on leaf litter too, right? Yeah. So I really only focused on the decomposers. So your earthworms, your isopods, um, crickets. Also, I have tons of crickets in my yard and I love it. It's like a nice little ambiance, you know, (laughs) but other animals also benefit from it, from leaf litter and just ground litter in general. So if you think about a popular one that I like to bring up is fireflies. If you like looking at fireflies in the summer, you need to leave your leaf litter there because what they do is they overwinter under that leaf litter and it keeps them from freezing. And that's why we get our fireflies every summer. And the same thing with butterflies and moths or even bees. There are a lot of native insects and pollinators that require that leaf litter to hibernate over the winter. If you also think about in the springtime, we get a lot of rain. We're still pretty cold and chilly. This is like the prime time for amphibians to be coming out and kind of start their breeding season. And so, for example, barred tiger salamanders, because I like those, they're cute. And so I'll talk about them. (laughs) Um, So they like to hide underneath leaf litter, under the soil and stuff like that. So it's really giving them a nice, you know, insulation. It's also giving them moisture, which they need. When you leave all of this leaf litter around, it's not really trash. It's a microhabitat for all of these, you know, smaller organisms that we don't really think about. That's really cool. And we have to do a really quick She Goes Outdoors poll because I'm curious. Deidre, where did you grow up out of curiosity? So I grew up in Northwest Kansas around Norton, like in Norton, Decatur County. Okay. I'm curious because I grew up calling fireflies lightning bugs, and I know it varies regionally. So Julia, what do you call them? Lightning bugs. You do? I think it's more of a, more of a Southern thing. That's fascinating. I, d- I just had to ask because I've seen multiple polls on the internet and people being like, oh, you can tell where someone's from based on that. I think we're going to do a poll when this podcast episode drops to see what uh, the listeners call them. Good idea. (laughs) So think uh, crayfish versus crawdad. Oh, yeah. Okay, let's talk about that too really quick, and then we'll get back to fall colors. Crayfish or crawdad, Deidre? I'm a crayfish gal. Yeah. I grew up calling them crawdads, but I remember when I started working for the fish lab when I was in college, they yelled at me. (laughs) They were like, they're crayfish. Do not call them crawdads. Yeah, once I moved down to Pratt, I'm like more Southern, you know, and everybody down here calls them crawdads. Yeah. It's yeah, so weird. Bed bugs even. Sometimes you'll hear that. Yeah. <laughs> so funny. <laughs> Too funny. 
Okay, so let's get back to this leaves and the leaf litter. Um, Deidre, you've got me sold on this process, but what about our listeners who are maybe super type A and prefer the look of a tidy yard or they have to rake up leaves to comply with their HOA? Yeah, so um, you can still uh, benefit your local wildlife in your yard. What I do, so I kind of have areas in my yard where I just let the leaves collect naturally, like in my garden, because who doesn't want it decomposing in their garden and providing all that natural fertilizer? Um, And then I also have, like between these two bushes, I have a compost pile. And so some of the leaves, like towards the front of my yard, if I want it to look a little nicer, I'll rake them up use a little wheelbarrow and I'll put them into my compost pile. And let me tell you, if you dig in that thing, like there are so many isopods and so many crickets, like it's right by my back, like my window by my bedroom. And I just like cracking it in the fall and just listening to all the crickets singing out there. So that's one way that you can kind of get, get around that. Nice. And you can also um, mulch them like right in your yard, can't you? If you want to go over them with a lawnmower or something. Yes. Yeah. That would probably work too. I'm, I just don't pull out my lawnmower unless I absolutely have to. I'm one of those people. Sounds familiar. We don't water for a reason. (laughs) Exactly. So yeah, if you're one of those that wants to, you know, not have this pile of leaf litter in your, in your yard somewhere, definitely mulch them up and then just kind of let the leaf particulate just gather up in your yard in like a natural way where the wind carries it. And that's where your insects and your, you know, your smaller animals are going to hide. That's cool. Yeah, because mulching them is a good option, but it's going to destroy some of that habitat that some of our larger critters like salamanders might use to burrow under. So definitely pros and cons. And another fun observation is, you know, I have the benefits of living out in the country, so I don't have to rake leaves, but we have a fox that has made the farm home. And the fox has been spotted digging in our yards, I'm guessing looking for grubs. So those types of things, again, uh, your, your piles of leaves, decaying leaves is creating habitat for food as well for your omnivores, such as foxes. Most definitely. I think as humans, we like to try and control nature. And I'm trying to, you know, have people shift that paradigm to how about we invite nature into our lives? You know, how about we bring it in and we can still tidy it up a little bit, but let nature do its thing and you will just be surrounded by wildlife. Hey, and speaking of that note, you know, a few episodes ago, we talked about fall foraging with Chelsea. What impact do cooler, damper conditions in leaves have on fungi growth and foraging potential? Yeah, so, you know, I'm not an expert on fungi, but I will say they they do need that moisture content. They need somewhere to, you know, get their food because they digest their food outside of their, their you know, fruiting body and then they bring it in. What happens is you get all this dead material on your, on your lawn and the forest floor, you know, out in the grassland area, and that is prime eating time for your fungi. And so they like the cooler temperatures, they like the damper conditions, and that's really going to encourage those fruiting bodies of the fungi to burst out of the ground, if you will, or out of the tree trunk and provide us with a foraging opportunity. Uh, because I can't remember the exact percentage, but we never see over 90% of the actual fungus. It's all underground doing the decomposition and, and enriching that soil. So 
the fall is perfect environmental conditions for the fruiting bodies to emerge. Yeah, and those of us trying to ease our way in, I think as foragers, like mushrooms is doable because I can go to a grocery store and see mushrooms in there. And so that's not too far of a leap for me. But if you guys will remember, um, we talked with Amy Bowsman about entomophagy, which was eating insects. And so that's really interesting to think about too. You mentioned crickets, Deidre, and I know that that is one insect that you can safely consume. Do be careful with the legs on there because they can have rough edges that could get caught in your throat. But really interesting to think about all the different things that you could potentially forage in your own yard just by leaving a little bit more leaf litter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, even grasshoppers. I know you have to worry about parasites with grasshoppers. You have to cook them really well, but I have personally eaten a few grasshoppers which was interesting. (laughs) Interesting. Deidre, when we talked with Amy, she mentioned cricket flour and how that can be a really good like starting point to begin consuming insects and insect material. Is that something that you've ever tried? I have not, but I would definitely be interested in it. Quick story time with Deidre, but my grandma as a joke for Christmas one time, she bought little flavored crickets as like the snack for our dinner. And everybody, everyone in my family was just grossed out. And me being the little biologist nature girl that I am, I was like, oh, I'll just sprinkle them on my salad and little croutons. And I ate them. And I think my brother about hurled. And I was just like, this is actually pretty good. So I could totally see myself going for cricket flour. I love it. That's awesome. So the leaves tend to get all the attention in the fall. They're doing beautiful things. They're changing colors. They're going through that process of leaf obsession. But what about the grasslands? Both Kansas and Nebraska are located in the plains, and Iowa shares its western border with the Great Plains region as well. So often recognized for its prairie grassland habitats, I just, there's so much going on in the grasslands, it's underappreciated. So Deidre, what's happening in the grasslands in the fall? Basically, you're having the same thing. You're having that chlorophyll breakdown inside of your leaf, your monocot leaf. Remember, we talked about that on your grasses. But grasses don't, quote, lose their leaves like our trees do, but they still kind of, you know, slowly degrade and fall off. And they still kind of make that layer of leaf litter in the prairie. And then if you think about it, you still have all of your different isopods and your fungi doing the same decomposition. You're still providing that habitat for, you know, your overwintering bees and your butterflies and moths. I just like to think about the colors of the prairie. I personally find the prairie fall colors more beautiful than trees. I think that's the Northwest Kansan talking here, just going out into the prairie and just having that, you know, cold, crisp air with all those red burgundies and oranges in the grass. I love it. And so, you know, it's really the same thing. It's just on a a slightly different scale, if you will. Yeah. So when I think of like fall grasslands, I usually think of blue stem because you see that beautiful kind of reddish tint to it. And it's so, it's almost even terracotta. It is such a pretty color. Yes, I love big blue stem and little blue stem in the fall. Just absolutely gorgeous. And in the fall too, on the prairies, there are some um, wildflowers that are still hanging on, especially earlier fall. So there's all kinds of things you can see out there. In addition to those really gorgeous brown colors, there might be some purples and burgundies. So really cool to check out. Yeah, I love the goldenrod season. That's kind of that late summer, early fall time. Mm -hmm. And it's just 
gorgeous. That, that pop of yellow with all the burgundies in it. Well, if you guys have never been to the Tallgrass Prairie Preserve, I would encourage you to check that out. You can hike amongst all these beautiful grasslands and really experience that up close. So definitely look that one up and add it to your bucket list. My favorite thing about fall is, I can't, okay, favorite things. It's, is it, I think we established last episode that fall is my favorite season and for multiple reasons. One of them, it's my favorite fall color is the sumac that change. Oh, it, it's just a beautiful colors that are surrounded quite a bit of, of Nebraska. Just love it. Like that is the sign of fall when those sumacs change to the beautiful reds and orange colors. And I'm right there with you, the grasslands as well. And I'm fortunate to have um, owned some pasture land that is full of native grasses where the Oregon Trail once went through. And I can just envision the the settlers coming across the, the grasslands and seeing the, the change of the fall colors and the crisp, cool air. And I'm kind of a fan of like the wet dampness of fall too, because it, it's not the humidity of summer. But, you know, uh, Deidre, I got to know, what is your favorite thing about fall? I'm honestly, I'm right there with you. All of everything you just said, that is like my favorite. I really enjoy just that like cool, crisp air. It's not that bitter coldness that we get in the wintertime on the Great Plains with the, the nasty winds and stuff. It's just that nice walk out with, you know, your cup of coffee or your tea, hot cocoa. If you're my boyfriend, he loves hot cocoa. <laughs> I love going out there and just sitting and listening to the, you know, the dry plants rustling in the breeze and just sipping on my coffee and things like that. So I would say that's my favorite. Yeah. Uh, just talking about that makes me want to go sit outside on my porch. I love that. Yeah, or like fall camping. You can unplug from everything and just immerse yourself in that the beauty of nature. I love doing that. Yeah, we went and camped at Clark State Fishing Lake in Kansas. It's about an hour west of Pratt, if you guys are familiar with the area. And it was so beautiful out there with all the colors changing and stuff. But we kind of got duped because it was like 95 degrees on Saturday. Don't know what that's all about, but it was still really stunning. It's a really great time to view nature too. When we were out there, we saw multiple osprey, which were super, super cool to watch. And we were really up close and personal with them. And um, we had blue wing teal, like zipping by us. We were on cliffs hiking around. And so they couldn't see us coming around the cliff face. And so we were just kind of hugged against the edge of the cliff and they zoomed right by our faces at like 15 yards away. Just so stunning to see. So Deidre, for our listeners that are interested in getting out and enjoying all the beauty that fall has to offer, do you have any recommendations for places to go or resources to check out to learn more? You know, I would say a lot of people think you have to go on these great big trips to enjoy nature or to just, you know, have an adventure, if you will. And I've kind of been adopting, especially since, you know, COVID-19 happened, explore your backyard, explore your, your community, or, you know, if you live on a farm, just go out and, and look around. And I think that's how you can really appreciate your fall colors and just nature in general. You don't have to make it a big production. Just spend 30 minutes and go walk around. You'll find something. Go to your local park. Go to our state parks across the states. You can even see just the change in colors that's going on in those beautiful trees. Kick around some leaves you know, that's what some of those pumpkin patches are doing is they're ultimately just creating 
the nature habitat that we have in our backyard or our local parks. And you can enjoy them, all these fall experiences, without having to go to those larger overpopulated areas as well. Most definitely. And just speaking of pumpkin patches, you know, your pumpkins, that could be a food source for wildlife. And if you, you know, once the season's kind of over, if you smash those up and kind of put them in a secluded area, you can see squirrels, deer, all sorts of wildlife are going to come and kind of have a little snack on your pumpkin. So that's another opportunity to just enjoy wildlife in your backyard. Great point, because my kids like to take the little pumpkins, they put it on the tee of a t-ball bat stand, and then they bat the pumpkins everywhere. And next year we have volunteer pumpkins growing. So lots going on there. (laughs) That's perfect. Fun and nature friendly. (laughs) Awesome. Well, Deidre, it's always a pleasure to have you on with us. Um, This is super fun. And I know our listeners are going to learn a lot from this conversation. It is sometimes hard to remind yourself to stop and slow down and appreciate these incredible things that are happening right under our noses, maybe at a slower pace. You know, we get wrapped up in fall and in deer season or all the activities that you can get involved with if your kiddos are in school and sports, whatever, but it's amazing to step back and appreciate some of these processes. So thank you for joining us today. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me again. It's always a joy to be here. So Well, you're the best. And you guys know where to send your fan mail for Deidre. Um, Deidre works again at the Pratt Education Center and Museum. Um, She's here with us at KDWP, and we are so, so lucky to have her. If you guys have any questions for Deidre or want to follow up about this topic or anything else, feel free to reach out to her directly. You can call our agency at 620-672-5911 and ask for Deidre directly. You can send her a letter to our Pratt office or to the Pratt Education Center and Museum, or you can reach out to us on Facebook, and we're happy to connect you with Deidre and get you guys in touch with her so she, you can ask her some of your questions. So definitely do that. And on that note, while you're on our She Goes Outdoors Facebook page, be sure to jump in and let us know all the fun things that you're doing this fall. If you're jumping in leaf piles or if you find anything interesting like a barred tiger salamander in your leaf litter, send us a picture and post it on that page. We love to see what you guys are up to. That being said, as far as the podcast goes, be sure to like, rate, and subscribe to the podcast so you get updates on everything we've got going on. Each time we put out a new episode, you'll get a notification straight to your phone. So it's really important. Rate us and review us. Let us know how we're doing and what other topics you want to learn more about. And of course, like us and share us with all your friends. We love new listeners. We love hearing from you guys. And we appreciate our entire She Goes Outdoors community, both our expert contributors like Deidre and also our listeners like you. So thank you, as PBS would say. All right, guys. Well, it's been a pleasure and we can't wait to see you outdoors. Outdoors.